Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 20, verses 3 to 23, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he, bowed, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is God's word. The last time that uh, Jesus Christ saw the disciples, um, their tails were between their legs. Uh, They were denying him, they were running away, they were deserting him. And what's the first thing that he says to them after the resurrection? He sees Mary first. And why doesn't he say to Mary, you go tell those deserters, you know, who used to act like my friends, who wouldn't stay awake with me for even, you know, 60 minutes in my moment of greatest need. You go tell them, you know, they didn't stand by me in in the hour of my greatest danger. You know, you go tell those miserable deserters to get here and they better repent. They better have an explanation. They better have something good to say. Why didn't he say that? It's an amazing thing. He didn't say that at all. Instead, he says, Verse 17, he says, go tell my brothers. He calls them his brothers. And when he shows up to see the disciples, verses 19 to 21, I'm just going to read this. It was well read uh, earlier, but I'm going to read it again here. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They were overjoyed. He says peace. And the word peace, it's, it's the word shalom. It is a deep, resonating peace. You know, like a bass note. You know, when you hear a bass note, there's a deep undercurrent. In the same way, it's this deep, resonating peace that rings and rings and echoes into all the different faculties of your life. That's what the word shalom is intended to mean, and and that's the word he he uses. In other words, there's not even a word of rebuke. It's an amazing thing, not one word of rebuke. He knew that these disciples, they were beating themselves up inside. He already knew that. So instead of beating them up, he says in verses 22 to 23, he says, receive. I'm going to give you gifts. Receive. Just like a conquering king, Jesus comes and he bears... He, he bears the spoils of war, the spoils of his victory. He's got so much to give them. And, and every one of these gifts, they're a direct result. Just as any conquering king would take over a region, he would bring the spoils of that region. Here, these are the direct results of Jesus conquering the grave. That's what he brings. And he starts by giving them faith. You know, at the end of chapter 20, um, it's kind of a, not really an enigmatic verse, a series of verses, but verses 30 to 31, the writer, the author, John, he writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That was John's intent. That was the Spirit's intent. You, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the first thing that Jesus does is he gives them faith. He gives them faith to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This gift is the basis of all the other gifts that we're going to talk about today. That's how you you, you unite to the risen Christ. In other words, faith isn't something you can't work up to on your own. You You can't earn this kind of faith. It's a gift. You have to receive it. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, We're not talking about general faith. Everyone's got faith. Everyone's got faith in something. Imagine you have to hire somebody and you have a bunch of applicants. How are you going to decide who the right person is? This is what you normally do. The first thing you do is you go to the authority sources. You get their resume and you review the resume and then you do, what you do is you check up on the references. You check up on, uh, you validate the connections. You checked on LinkedIn. You, you look at all your sources. So you go to the authority sources and then what you do is if that person passes that test, then you test them. You give them exams. You give them case studies, interviews. You have to study the evidence behind all the references. And then you eventually arrive at a rationally uh, convinced mind. You convince yourself that this person could be it. But at the end of the day, you can't really know for sure uh, whether, just by looking at the data, just by examining all the references, you can't really know for sure whether or not she's the right one, whether or not he's the right one. You have to commit. You have to trust. You have to have faith. You have to step out. You know what it means to have faith? You have to step out and become vulnerable because you're taking a risk. It means that you have to, you have to um, expose yourself to potential loss in a way. So that's the order. You check references. You validate. You, know, you, you test the evidence. But eventually you come to a rationally convinced mind and then you have to trust. You have to have faith. In all the areas of your life, you can't know until you commit. 
Everybody else, common logic says, well, I can't really commit until I know. And that's why many of us remain single for a very, very long time because you can't really know until, you can't really uh, commit until you know. But the reality is you can't really know until you commit first. And, and for some of you, the reason why you don't really know is because you haven't committed. You haven't yet committed. There's no act of trust. There's no act of commitment that comes without losing some control in your life. I got married three years ago, and I'm telling you, you're not going to hear anything else from me except right, right off the start, right from the bat. When you get married, the first thing you lose is a sense of control in your life. For instance, you know, I can't eat white rice anymore. You know, I've grown up eating white rice all my life. I'm not even allowed to eat white rice. I can't drink soda anymore. All the things that made me me before I got married are no longer a part of me. You know, and, and that's, but that's the thing. If that's the case with marriage, losing some sense of control, what does it mean to know the absolute God without losing absolute control? Without losing absolute control of yourself? This is why, Je- you can't muster up this kind of faith. This is why Jesus has to give it to you. We receive. And once you have that, once you're able to receive, just as Jesus gave to his disciples, you're going to get the spoils of war. The spoils of victory, the spoils of the resurrection. Here's, all, here's the gifts, and I'm going to go through four very quick points. And I am going to go pretty quickly today, but just, we're going to chew on it just enough so we can suck out some of the juices, okay, from this. We get intimacy, we get identity, we get mission, we get power. Those are the four things. Intimacy, identity, mission, power. Uh, the first thing we get is intimacy. Verse 17, Jesus has a really odd thing to marry. Mary, you know, if you imagine what's happening, Mary goes to see the tomb, it's empty. She's, she's distraught because somebody in her mind took away Jesus' body. And she's just, she's a mess. She's a wreck. She's crying. She's sobbing. And there she uh, comes a gardener, at least somebody she thinks is a gardener. It's really Jesus in his glorified body. He's got a, he's got a new body. And, and the gardener, the supposed gardener, is talking to Mary. And once she realizes that this person is not the gardener. It's actually Jesus, the risen Christ. She's holding on to him. And, uh, and, and Jesus says an odd thing. He says, don't touch me. Some of your Bibles, it says, don't touch me. What he's actually saying in, the, in our version of the Bible, it says, don't cling to me. That's the original language. It's more true to true the original language. Don't cling to me, Mary. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. I haven't gone back to the Father yet. Why does he say that? It's an odd thing. Why does he say, don't cling to me? What I thought he meant when he said, don't cling to me, I thought he meant, whoa, whoa, don't touch me. I have a new body. It's pristine. It's pure. And if you touch me, you are not holy. I am holy. If you touch me, you might get electrocuted. That's really what I thought it meant, you know, because he's glorified. But there's a problem with that. Because right after this passage, he meets Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas? He doesn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And he talks to Doubting Thomas. And what does he say? He says to Thomas, touch me. So you know that it has nothing to do with some magical power that's going to zap you. That's not what he's saying to Mary. Later on in Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the book in Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, there are some women who literally bow at Jesus' feet. And they're holding on to him. They're grabbing onto his feet and they're worshiping him. So you know that touching him is not the issue. Why does he say to Mary, don't cling to me? And this is the reason why. Mary is saying, now that I have you, I'm never going to let you go. There's no way you're ever going to escape from me ever again. I'm never going to lose you again. And what Jesus is saying, you know, don't cling to me. 
He's saying, Mary, you don't get it. I've risen. I'm not like Lazarus. Earlier in the book, in John chapter 13, Jesus raises a man named Lazarus back from the dead. He says, I'm not like Lazarus. Lazarus has just got the same body. Lazarus still has to pay taxes. In fact, Lazarus is going to die again. I've been risen into a new dimension. I've been given a new body. I've been glorified. At one point, when I return to the Father, you're going to be able to cling to me for the rest of your life, even when I'm not physically present. You're going to be able to have me and hold on to me when I'm even not physically present with you. Our relationship has completely been transformed because I've risen from the dead. That's what he's saying. You have full access to me. I'm completely open to you. I'm going to be spiritually present all over. You're always going to have me. You're always going to be able to hold me. You're always going to be able to embrace me because I'm never going to let you go. That's what he's saying. You know what that means? The risen Christ is someone that you're supposed to hold. He's someone you're supposed to embrace. He's someone that you're supposed to know and see and touch. That's what he says to Thomas. See me. See my hands. Touch my side. Even in the darkest moment. In fact, the moment that you believe is the darkest moment. Jesus says, I'm absolutely present. I'm there. You know, some of you, you say, you know, if I had Jesus physically in front of me, then I can believe. You know, we say that, especially when we're children, we say that. What you're really saying is, I need to see Jesus as the people in history saw Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here to Mary is, you can actually see me beyond what those in history saw me as. You have power to see me now beyond what those in history have, have seen. When you pray, you're not just saying prayers. You're not just making orders. You're not placing orders to Christ. You're holding him. What you're saying is, I'm clinging on to you. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever known that? I'm going to put it another way. When you pray, do you sense that Jesus is present? That he's helping you? That he's comforting you? That he's strengthening you? That he's encouraging you? That he's healing you? Do you know that? Have you ever felt that? He's not just abstract. He's changing you. If you're, if you're just saying prayers, what you're saying is, I need to ascend. I need to cling. You know, but if you, listen to this. If, you, if you've met the risen Christ, it means that you're going to grab him. But it actually means more so, he's going to hold on to you. He's not going to let go of you. So you can practice his presence everywhere. Anywhere. Because that's where his presence is. Everywhere anywhere. That's the first point. The second point is we get an identity. We had intimacy. Now we have an identity. Jesus says Mary. He calls him Mary. Mary has a name to Jesus. You know, Mary doesn't recognize that it's Jesus. Mary in Jesus's glory could not recognize him, but Jesus in Mary's darkest moment knows him. He recognizes us before we even recognize him. You know, how do you know who you are? How do you know? Philosophers have been asking themselves this question for eternity. How do you know who you are? We think that we find ourselves by getting all of our needs met. If we get all of our needs fulfilled, we know that we found ourselves. You ever see the movie Sabrina, I Found Myself in Paris? The Western philosophy, the Western thinkers say that you find yourself through, through recognizing and achieving your individual desires, your individual pursuits, whether it's sex, money, power. These are the things that we pursue. 
The Eastern community, the Eastern thought, Eastern religion says you find yourself through community, through family, family acceptance. So on one hand, you have this community acceptance. That's your identity. On the other side of the world, our world, we say that we find ourselves through individual achievement, individual um, pursuits. And on the one hand, you know, but what, I mean, actually, what do you see here? Verse 16, Jesus says, Mary, that's the individual. But then he says, verse 21, go tell my brothers. There's the community. You see both of them emerging here. Jesus Christ brings a, a, unite, a, a union, a full embodiment of both, individual and community. When you're saved, it's a personal, a deep, rich, personal experience. That's what happens when you come to the gospel. But at the same time, he doesn't leave you alone. He brings you into a community. The gospel saves you not, not only personally, but into a community. It's tremendously rich. And uh, so you see the gospel. You see the gospel as deeply personal and at the same time a radical community that forms here. It's the richest embodiment of both, but on the other hand, it's neither. It's more than that. Why is it more than that? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins a series of teachings called the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we know it. And by mountainside, one of the teachings that he gives is he says, do not worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. You know? And uh, he, mainly what he's saying is if you pursue these things, you're going to lose yourself. If you pursue all of your needs, if that's your end goal in life, to pursue everything that you desire, to feed your urges, you're going to lose yourself. If you, if you hang your hat on a salary, you found yourself, if you have that salary, but what happens if you lose your salary? What happens if you get laid off? What happens if you lose your career, lose your job? If you hang yourself on your beauty, then it's great until you get too old. It's going to be great until you start to lose the very thing that you're pursuing all your life. And, uh, you know, if you see achievement or love, career, wealth, these things promise identity, but Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things, then he says, will be added to you. What does he mean by that? In other words, he says, if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. But if you first lose yourself, if you first deny yourself, that's when you really find yourself. He who finds himself just through individual uh, pursuits or fulfillment or community, you know, community acceptance, that's how he's going to lose himself. But if you lose yourself, if you lose yourself for Jesus in Christ, that's how you find yourself. And this passage is a perfect example. Mary finds herself not by trying to, uh, you know, fulfill, find some fulfillment in life, but she finds herself by, she's a mess. She's lost herself completely. She's trying to find Jesus. That's all she needs. That's all she wants. Mary's trying to find Jesus. She's doing everything wrong. Theologically, she's doing everything wrong. Her theology is way off. She thinks he's dead. She's trying to find a dead Jesus when, in fact, he's alive. That's why she can't find him, because he's not in the tomb. He's alive. She thinks he's the gardener. Uh, the gardener has his, is his enemy. She thinks the gardener stole Jesus away. In fact, the gardener is actually his friend, the friend that she's been looking for all her life. She's talking to angels at the beginning of the passage, but she still doesn't understand. She still doesn't get it. She's only doing one thing right. That's, every, that's all that she needs. It's the only thing she needs to do. She's looking after Jesus. She's looking for Jesus. She wants Jesus. That's all she wants. She won't be satisfied until she finds him. The empty tomb, then the gardener, she's just looking for Jesus. What does this tell you? 
It doesn't take intelligence because Mary wasn't smart that day. It doesn't take a cool head because Mary was a mess. She was just, she's lost herself completely. It doesn't take, um, it doesn't take a great record. Mary was a prostitute. It was said that she was demon-possessed. So what does it actually take? What does it take to find Jesus? She's just looking for him. To the point of tears, she's looking for him. She wants to find him. She won't give up the search. And what does she receive? Jesus, the risen Jesus, finds her. The risen Jesus finds her first. Among all the other people that he could have appeared before first, he appears before Mary. He seeks her first, and he calls her by name. Your name is your identity. Your name is validation. In fact, everyone here probably has a nickname. Some of us are offended by our nicknames. Why is that? It's because we all know we need people in our lives to validate us. We need people somewhere inside. Inherently, we know that we cannot validate ourselves. It's not enough for you to say, well, I'm pleased with my work. I don't care what anybody else says. I'm pleased with myself. Because you know deep inside, there's no self-respecting writer or musician out there in the world, you know, who just plays just for their own pure enjoyment because in order to know, the, the fullest extent of the enjoyment comes from knowing that you've been validated. That's why we have teachers. That's why we have mentors. That's why we have people outside looking, examining, testing us. And so we need somebody on the outside to validate us. We need that inherently. We need somebody on the outside who says, you're okay, I see you, I know you. That's what we need. We try to get validation through our careers. We try to get validation through our wealth. We try to get validation. We, we want to get a name from somebody who loves us. That's what we want. And you know why that doesn't work? You know why looking for somebody who loves you doesn't ultimately satisfy and validate you? Ultimately, you know why? Because the person who's loving you is also looking for validation and love from you. So you have two empty souls that are trying to come together to become a somebody. You're using each other. You're trying to get validation from each other. You're not really loving each other. You're using each other. Now, how do you get out of that? How do you get out of this? Here's Jesus, glorified, all in all, all sufficient. He didn't come down to crave because he craves our love. And here he says, I know you. I see you. I love you to the everlasting. That's an amazing thing. That truth will change you. You take that, you plant that in, that will change you. We need somebody who says, you know, I'll never forsake you, I'll never leave you, I'll never run away from you. Jesus says, I won't do that. We need that. There's only one somebody out there who can ultimately validate you, who can ultimately give you worth. That's why we're seeking validation from so many other people. And Jesus says, I see you. Mary, I know you. He seeks us first. Now, what he doesn't say is, come here, slave. You're even lucky that I even know who you are, that I used to hang out with you and you split from me. You know, I know you all right. You're a scum. You're a prostitute. You're a needy piece of trash. No, that's not what he says. He says, Mary, I know you. I call you by name. John chapter 10, verse 3. My sheep know my voice. I call them by name. I lead them. That's Jesus. Identity. The third point is mission. We get intimacy. We have full access to Jesus anywhere, everywhere. We have a name in Jesus. 
But the first thing, the third thing we have is a mission. Verse 16, notice, as soon as he calls Mary out, he says, Mary, that gives her comfort. That gives her joy. But the thing, immediately he says, go tell my brothers. Go to my brothers and tell them. Tell them the gospel. Tell them that I've been risen. Verses 19 to 21, that's what we just read. You know, when he appears to his disciples, they're overjoyed, it says. But then he says, shalom. He says, peace. Then what does he say? As the Father sent me, now I am sending you. The Father sent me to the cross, and as the Father sent me, now I'm sending you. He says, I want you to have ultimate peace. Peace that will change every part of your life. But now I'm sending you. In John chapter 21, the next chapter of this book, Peter, who's completely, you know, he's distraught because he failed Jesus. He denied Jesus. He rejected Jesus three times in his hour of greatest need. Jesus, one by one, three times, reinstates Peter. He forgives Peter. He says, Peter, I forgive you. Peter, I forgive you. But immediately after, he says, feed my sheep. I'm sending you. You see this theme throughout the, the Bible, throughout Scripture. This pattern exists. Remember our series on Abraham? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you, but I'm also going to make you a blessing. Go. He says to Jacob, remember Jacob? He says, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change you. I've transformed you. I've given you a new name. I know you. And then what does Jacob do? He goes. He leaves that area. Remember our vision series, Acts chapter 2, immediately after Jesus ascends to heaven, he promises the Holy Spirit to come down. And all the disciples are gathered in a room. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and blesses them. And you see them speaking all these different languages. But what's the different languages? What does it mean? He's sending them. Those are, the, those are the ends of the earth that Jesus sends them to. Remember the Great Commission? Go and make disciples. He says, I'm sending you to the ends of the earth. He's sending them. He blesses us, and then he sends us. What's that mean? If you're approaching Jesus because you want healing, you want help, you want warmth, you want comfort, you want strength, you want acceptance, that's good. It's good to do that because Jesus is the only one that can give you any of those things. But, and this is the place to come to that, but you know, but you know what happens when Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all of your needs, when he becomes the culmination of all of your needs? You're going to be changed. You're going to find that you're not able to uh, keep your mind on just your own problems anymore. Before you came to Christ, your mind is just on your own problems. That's called self-absorption. Just your own life, your own joys, your own pleasures. But after Jesus grabs a hold of you, you know what happens? He sends you. All of a sudden, you can't keep your mind on just your own. That's how you know. That's how you know you're becoming in union with Christ. Your mind is no longer on your own self, your own marriage, your own children. You start to think of others. You have new intimacy. You have... Uh, uh, new identity, but you have mission. God gives you purpose. And he humbles you into that. Jesus never calls you to heal you without calling you to send you. He never does that. He gives you mission. He gives you purpose. He humbles you. What's humility? We think that humility is thinking less of ourselves. When in actuality, humility is what? You just think of yourself less. And Jesus sends you. So you have intimacy, you have identity, you have mission, you have purpose. And if you haven't experienced those three things, then you don't have Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You haven't really deeply, richly, in a way that has transformed you, experienced Christ. So how do you receive it? Lastly, Jesus gives us power. He gives us power. Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. 
That's what he promises. This is the culmination of the spoils of victory. Why does he say that? You know, a thoughtful person is going to say, you know, how do we get these things? You know, because I don't want to lose myself. That's natural. I don't want to give up myself. I don't want to give up things in my life. So how am I supposed to know him personally? How am I supposed to know him in a rich way if I don't want to give up things in life? How can I sense this new identity when I don't feel like I'm worth anything? How do I get this sense of identity? How can I, get, how can I be on mission when I'm so self-absorbed? How do I get these things? Jesus says, I'm going to give you my power, the power that kept me going. I'm going to give you the power that raised me from the dead, the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to receive the Holy Spirit. My power is going to enable you to have faith. It's going to enable you to get out of yourself. It's going to enable you to get out of yourself. It's going to give you all the gifts that you need. I'm going to rescue you out of your self-pity. I'm going to rescue you from your self-absorption. I'm going to rescue you from the practice of your own selfishness. And I'm going to bring you into God's service. I'm going to bring you into God's mission, into his purpose. Now, you know why? He doesn't say to his disciples when he sees them. He, could, he, says, he gives them, he says, peace. You know why he doesn't say, you know, you deserted us. Now I want you to come and I want you, I want you to receive punishment. Instead, he says, I want you to receive the spirit. He, he should have said, you know, receive punishment. But he says, I want you to receive peace. Receive the spirit. Why does he do that? It's because it wasn't their abandonment that destroyed him. It was, you know, ult- what ultimately destroyed Jesus was not their abandonment. It wasn't their rejection. It wasn't the nails and the, and the crown of thorns. That's not what destroyed him. There was a greater abandonment that he experienced. And this one, he endured to the end, and it consumed him completely. This one took him out. It took him to the depths of hell. It completely took him out. When his disciples abandoned him, Jesus never said a word, Right? Even Peter, he denies Jesus three times. Jesus glanced at him, never said a word. But on the cross, God himself turned his face away from Jesus. God himself abandoned him. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God himself abandoned him. And what Jesus is saying on the cross at that moment was he's saying, I've lost intimacy. There's no more access to the Father. I've lost identity. I've lost myself. You know, the Trinity was literally torn apart on the cross because Jesus lost the Father. And in a sense, then the Father lost his own son. The Spirit lost Jesus. Jesus lost the Spirit. And so he's lost intimacy. He's lost identity. But on the cross, he says, I've lost mission. I've lost purpose. You know, you don't know my name anymore. You don't know me. The Father does not know me. I no longer, all my brothers have abandoned me. Everybody's rejected me. I have no more brothers. I have no more mission. I have no more identity. I have no more intimacy. And I've lost power. We get the gifts because Jesus lost the gifts. Jesus gave up the gifts. He gave up himself. He sacrificed. And this loss became the ultimate representation of his victory. The cross is not just a symbol of hope. It's not just a symbol. It's the reality of our hope. It's the reality of hope. The cross gives you power. You know, Jesus lost intimacy so we could have intimacy. Jesus lost identity so we can have identity. Jesus lost mission and purpose so we can have his mission and his purpose. He's sending us, and Jesus lost power so that we could have the spirit. The same power that rose Jesus again from the dead is the power that resides in us. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. When you say that I believe in Jesus, 
Even death can't overwhelm you. You know why? Because the Spirit will bring you back to new life. That's amazing truth. It's an amazing truth. He says, receive the Spirit. We have that power of the resurrection in us. You know, in ancient times, a Roman citizen was able to walk from one end of the earth, the known world, to the other without ever being uh, molested. That's the word, right? Without ever being touched, without ever being mugged, without ever being bothered, without so much as being insulted by another person. Do you know that? He wears this Roman badge on it as a, that he's a citizen, declaring that he's a citizen of Rome, and he goes untouched from one end of the world to the other. And Jesus is saying that we have the power of the resurrection in our lives. The Spirit is in us. That is our badge. That is our seal. We get to walk from the, to the ends of the earth. And not even death can bother you. You know why? Because he says, you can break me, you can consume me, you can destroy me. You will only remake me. That is the power of the resurrection. You have true confidence. You have true poise. You know what that means? You can be bold without being arrogant because it's coming from the outside. This power changes you. You don't have to have anxiety. There's no fear. You know why? Because you have true intimacy. He's always there. You have the courage to face yourself, your sinfulness. You can surrender your sinfulness. You know why? That is your true identity. It's been taken over. Your record has been placed on Christ on the cross and his record has been placed on you. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the divine transaction. That's the gospel. And that's going to give you courage, the courage to think less of yourself and more of others. He is sending you. That's mission. These are the fruits of Jesus' victory over death. Do you have it? Can you taste it? Do you experience it daily? Does it radically move you and change you daily? You know, Jesus calls us brothers. You know what a brother is? A brother, for any of you who have brothers or or sisters, what is a brother? A brother is somebody who knows your deepest flaws. A brother is somebody who knows uh, the the things that, your breaking point. A brother is someone who knows your deepest weaknesses. A brother is someone who knows when you've betrayed other people, your selfish motives. That's what a brother knows. And in a way, you need, what, what they're saying here is you need to be a betrayer. You need to be a deserter so that you can truly become a brother of Christ. You need to recognize that. The only prerequisite to being called a brother of Christ is to know that, yes, I've betrayed him. I've deserted from him. And Jesus says, you know, you can come to me. You can cling to me. You know, when you pray, you're clinging. You know, when you're reading the Bible, you're clinging to Jesus. He says, Cling to me. Hold on to me because when you hold on to him, I will never let you go. I will never let you go. You can receive, you can receive, you can receive, you can receive. That's the conquering king. Those are the gifts he gives us. Do you believe that? Let's pray.